Good morning. For those who don't know me, my name is Jennifer Gidden. I have been a member here at UBC for 15 years, and I am single. I have been that way my entire life. And I am grateful that this talk um, was added to our Walking with God series, um, because intentional or not, I think singleness gets a little overlooked by the church. This is the first church that I've been part of that has provided an opportunity to address singleness to the extent that we're going to today. Um, and so I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for Emily and Aaron and Haley for seeing that um, and, and providing this talk. And I'm grateful for you for showing up this morning to listen to it. Um, although interestingly enough, when I received a list of recommended topics from Haley, Aaron, and the elders um, to address in this talk, my first thought was, this list is kind of long. And that's because there's a really wide spectrum of how people experience singleness. There's differences in how we become single, never, never married, like myself, divorced, or widowed. And within each of those categories, there's a range of how happy we are about it, depending on how complicated or painful things have been. Some singles describe it as suffering, Others just call it sadness, and still others call it contentment. Sometimes we experience all three of those in the same week. But the reality is every situation in life has difficulties because we live in a broken world. Our challenge is to navigate them in a way that honors and glorifies God, to live a life worthy of the gospel in all circumstances. That's what our entire Walking with God series has been all about. How do we live a God-honoring life at work, through discipling, through parenting, and marriage? And this morning, we're going to talk about how to do that in singleness. However, this talk is not going to be about how to live your best single life now, or how to best relieve yourself of being single. This talk is going to be about finding purpose and singleness from God's word. And what God's word has to say about singleness is glorious. It is encouraging. It will feed your soul. And this is true for married people and for single people. Now, if you've been to the previous installments of our Walking with God series, you might think that we've been walking backwards. We started with parenting and then went to marriage. And now we're doing singleness. Usually we think of those in the opposite direction. You start out single, you get married, you have kids, and live happily ever after, right? But what if I told you that we've actually been walking in the same direction that the story of the Bible takes us? That the Bible starts off with offspring, then introduces marriage, and then talks about singleness. In fact, in his book, God, Marriage, and Family, Andreas Kostenberger makes this observation. The Bible story goes from single being almost non-existent in creation, to being undesirable in the Old Testament, to advantageous for God's kingdom in the New Testament, and finally universal in God's new creation. So not only does the story of the Bible progress towards singleness, singleness gets better as you go along. In some way, the story of the Bible actually peaks with singleness, because the ultimate story of the Bible is about Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. And as Tim Keller points out, Jesus, the perfect human being, the ultimate expression of perfect humanity, didn't feel the need to get married to exhibit perfect humanity. Why? Well, this idea that singleness is the culmination of the story of the Bible 
and that Jesus stayed single for a reason highlights why it's important we devote time to singleness. Because a lot of people don't think about singleness as having a theological value to it, that it bears a meaningful imprint from God. But that's what we're going to look at this morning by exploring what we call the biblical theology of singleness, how singleness in and of itself fits into the story that the Bible is telling us. And as a result, how singleness fits into God's larger purpose of redeeming a people for himself. And I think we'll see something surprising when we do this, something that will change how we think and approach singleness in this world. It will give an added richness to living life as a single person for the kingdom of God. Because we'll see that the Bible actually affirms singleness as a viable lifestyle. Being good for the advancement of God's kingdom in a created world where sexual partnerships and marriage are the norm. This is remarkably different than how a lot of people view singleness. Some of you know this because you're dreading going home for Thanksgiving next week. You know you'll end up trapped in the living room with your uncle as he peppers you with questions. No boyfriend yet? Doesn't your brother have seven kids now? You're getting awful far behind before you manage to excuse yourself to get some more pie. Some of you know this because it can be a real challenge being single in a church that has gone all in on, quote, family values. Marriage stops being good, which it is, and starts to become necessary, which it isn't. When I first moved to Fayetteville, I visited multiple churches before settling on UBC. This conversation happened regularly. So, are you married? Nope. Oh, well, I'm sure God has the perfect person for you someday. And that was it. That was all they had to say about singleness. Paige Bitten Brown, a contributor to the Gospel Coalition, once shared a story of a woman at church who asked if she was seeing anyone special. Paige replied, sure, I see you and you're special. <laughs> I don't think anyone at church means to say that the single life is second class, but sometimes it sure seems that way. The church has the capacity to promise and live out a better community, to be a loving spiritual family that includes anybody no matter where they are in life. We diminish that when we think everyone should be married. Stanley Harawas, and I want to share this quote with you here. He's a professor of theological ethics at Duke Divinity School, and he writes this. When the church loses the significance of singleness, I suspect it does so because Christians no longer have confidence that the gospel can be received by those who have not been, so to speak, raised in it. Put differently, Christian justifications of the family may often be the result that Christians no longer believe the gospel is true or joyful. My hope this morning is to show you the wonder and the glory of the gospel through the lens of singleness, to show you how and why the Bible affirms single as being good. And then Samantha Burgess will come up and talk about some practical implications of this. So first, the biblical theology of singleness. And we're going to start at the very beginning of the Bible story, and I will admit there's not great news for singles at the beginning. It starts off pretty well in Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created the male and female. All humans, regardless of marital status, are created equal in the image of God. So far, so good. In verse 28, God then blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. 
Now, this command isn't just given to humans. Multiplication is an important part of God's good design for all creation. But we immediately see here, have a connection between blessing and offspring for the entire world. Well, single people can have sex and have babies. But Genesis 2 shoots down any suggestion that this is connected to God's blessing. Instead, it shows us that the means and context of being fruitful and multiplying is found in marriage. That's the point of humans being made male and female. And here's Genesis 2:24. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Jesus confirms this in Matthew 19. Paul repeats it in 1 Corinthians 7. So does Hebrews 13:4. The Bible is very clear that sex is to be confined to marriage. Therefore, be fruitful and multiply is intimately connected to marriage. Well, this is a problem for single people. But the bad news for singles isn't just giving up sex. The real bad news is that there appears to be no avenue for experiencing God's blessing as a single person. And this picture gets drilled into our heads as we watch offspring and blessing be a major theme in the promises God gives to Abraham. Here's Genesis 12, 2 through 3. God says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Later on, God takes Abraham outside and says, Look at the sky and count the stars if you are able to count them. Your offspring will be that numerous. Genesis 15, 5. This promise of abundant offspring gets repeated to Abraham's son Isaac, and then again to his grandson Jacob. So as we read God's plan for building his kingdom and delivering his promised blessing to the world through offspring, single people are sitting there thinking, yay, how do I possibly fit into this? But we can't miss the hint that we also get in Genesis about the ultimate purpose of all of this offspring, restoring God's good creation. Because while all humans equally bear the image of God, we also equally bear the brokenness of sin. Married or not. And the first couple, Adam and Eve, brought sin into the world through their disobedience to God and listening to the serpent instead. And while offspring were multiplying, so was sin. God's good creation goes off the rails quickly. But right after Adam and Eve's sin, God makes this pronouncement to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. A future offspring is coming, one who will deal permanently with sin. And so therefore, we can't focus so much on God's blessing coming through physical marriage and kids that we miss God's true blessing coming to the world through the birth of Jesus. All of the offspring points to him. You can read the genealogy in Matthew 1. And Jesus is a provision of God, not merely humans. It's easy to miss this because marriage and having kids are a central theme throughout the Old Testament as Abraham's family continuously grows. Just look at the book of Numbers to see how the multiplying is going. And we start to see the association of children as blessing and barrenness, singleness, as a curse. Here's Deuteronomy 7.14. If the people keep the covenant God made with God at Mount Sinai, God promises you will be blessed above all peoples, 
There will be no infertile male or female among you or your livestock. Now compare that to Leviticus 20, which deals with violating the covenant through sexual sin. Here's the punishment. They, they are to be cut off from their people. Verse 18. They will bear their guilt and die childless. Verse 20. No Israelite would ever choose singleness because to do so would not only miss out on God's blessing, but by extension, you're now considered part of God's curses. And if covenant blessings are passed on through offspring, then it's vital that your family line continues. You can't be single. This was so serious that provisions were actually made preserving the family name if a married man died without kids. It was the brother's duty to provide the kids. And if the brother-in-law refuses to participate, here's what it says in Deuteronomy 25.9. The deceased brother's wife is allowed to, quote, go up to him in the sight of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, and spit in his face. Take that, daytime slut choose. Saul pleads with David in 1 Samuel 24, 21, Therefore swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. Rodney Clapp, a Christian writer and editor, summed up the situation this way. Without children, the Israelite fears the single's name will burn out, sift to ashes, and be scattered and forgotten in the winds of time. And so the whole Old Testament system... <clears throat> was to get married and have kids as a way of building God's kingdom, experiencing his blessing and keeping your name and legacy. To be single was to be cursed and avoided at all costs. Quite frankly, this can be a prominent view in today's church when we lose sight of where the story of the Bible is going. Because another central theme in the Old Testament is that of Abraham's offspring failure to live up to their end of the covenant made with God at Mount Sinai. Kids or no kids, all of them fail. Where is God's promised blessing to the entire world through these people? Well, we see that the hope for humankind actually comes from God making a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. God will provide the offspring. And here's what he says to David. I will raise up after you, your descendant. I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verses 12 through 13. Again, we see God's ultimate blessing comes through God's provision of offspring. Not merely human effort. Ironically, the failure of Abraham's physical offspring to bring about God's blessing to the world actually turns things around for single people. This turning point is highlighted in the prophets God sends to his people. And the prophet's message is twofold. Judgment and hope. Outright condemnation to the physical offspring of Abraham because of their sin. And hope for a new offspring to come with a new covenant God will make with his people. Here's Jeremiah 16, 1 through 2. The word of the Lord came to me, do not marry or have sons or daughters in this place. He says why in verse 4. They will die from deadly diseases. They will not be mourned or buried, but will be like manure on the, child, on the soil surface. God tells Jeremiah to stay single because marriage and children are connected to God's judgment here, not blessings. Here's Isaiah 6.13. 
Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again, like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when felled. But here's where things change. The holy seed is the stump. The judgment on the people for their failure becomes the soil for something new. God's new holy seed, a new holy offspring. And Isaiah goes on to show who this seed is. In Isaiah chapter 7 and 9, the seed is a son given to us from the line of David, but also from God. Here we called Emmanuel, God with us. In Isaiah 53, we learn that the seed becomes a suffering servant. He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. The Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was cut off from the land of the living. The suffering servant dies as a cursed man, cut off without family or without children. But look what happens next in verses 10 through 12. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. My righteous servant will justify many. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion. Do you see it? He will see his seed. Through his guilt offering, the holy seed will produce his own offspring and be satisfied with it. The kingdom of God will no longer grow through physical offspring, but through spiritual offspring. Born through the atoning work of God's holy seed on our behalf. This is how God's true blessing comes to the world. And now we see a dramatic reversal for single people in the images of a barren woman and a eunuch. Here's Isaiah 54.1. Rejoice, childless one, who did not give birth. Burst into song and shout, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Here's Isaiah 56, 3 through 5. The eunuch should not say, look, I am a dried up tree. I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. Both a barren woman and the eunuch were figures of curses under the old covenant. Unable to have children, unable to leave a family legacy, cut off from the covenant blessings. But in the aftermath of the work of the suffering servant, they are now blessed. Not because they stop being barren or stop being single, but because when they hold firm to God's new covenant, they are now part of profoundly greater offspring the true heirs of the promises to Abraham with an eternal inheritance and an everlasting name and an everlasting legacy. When we get to the New Testament, we see that it's Jesus who's the fulfillment of God's promise to bless the world. Jesus is the promised offspring who will defeat sin and death and usher in God's kingdom, producing a new offspring through his life, death, and resurrection. And as a result, we see Distinctly different teaching from Jesus on birth, marriage, and family. Being part of God's family no longer comes through physical birth, but through faith in Christ. Here's John 1, 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, 
or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. That's the background for Jesus' teaching to Nicodemus in John 3.3. 3. Truly, I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Paul makes the same point in Galatians chapter 3. Here are verses 28 and 29. There's no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Peter does the same in 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. Because of his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Singles, you lack nothing in Christ. You are not lesser saints. Your life is not less valuable. In Christ, we have all the blessings of the new covenant. And this does not come from our marital status, but our redemptive status. In Christ, we are one of the haves, not the have-nots. We also see a new view about marriage. Jesus lays it out for us in Matthew twenty-two thirty. 30. In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. If there's no marriage in heaven, there can be no requirement for marriage in this life. In Matthew 19, after hearing Jesus' teaching on divorce, the disciples conclude that it's very better not to marry. And Jesus shocks them by saying, yes, that is a viable option. It is good for some to be single for the sake of the kingdom of God. Earthly marriage is good, but it is a temporary institution. It's a shadow that will ultimately give way to the greater eternal reality of the marriage between Christ and his church. That's the picture that we get in Revelation 19. There's a description of the wedding supper between Christ and his bride, which includes, quote, a vast multitude of believers. Christ has taken the entire church as his bride. That's the greater marriage. This is not saying that earthly marriage is a bad thing. We're told it's good throughout the story of the Bible. It's good to desire it. But we must understand that it is not ultimate. It will give way to something greater. Finally, we need to change our views on family and who's a member of it. When Jesus is told his mother and brothers are looking for him, here's his response in Matthew 12, 48 through 50. He says, who's my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of the Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Again, Jesus is not teaching that earthly families are bad. Jesus loved his mother and brothers. But Jesus does teach that earthly families are temporary. And Jesus did not come to focus on the temporary, but the eternal. John Piper writes, Christ came into the world to call out a people for his name from all the families on earth and into a new family where single people in Christ are full-fledged family members on par with others, bearing fruit for God and becoming mothers and fathers of the eternal kind. Jesus brings all of this teaching together in one of his last statements to the disciples in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. 
The command to be fruitful and multiply is not found in the New Testament. It has been replaced with go and make disciples. This doesn't mean you should never marry and have kids. But the ultimate means and context of God building his kingdom, blessing the world through offspring, comes through making disciples, spiritual offspring, not through traditional marriage and family. And we have to understand that. We're going to end our journey through the Bible in 1 Corinthians 7, which provides a great picture of living life of singleness and marriage as we wait for Christ's return. What's really great about this chapter is that Paul's statements are clearly rooted in the Old Testament with its high view of marriage and sex, but are also completely opposite from the Jewish tradition of associating marriage with blessing and singleness with curses. And that's because Paul is looking through the lens of Christ. Jesus changes everything. Paul's high view of marriage and sex, though, does lead him to insist on their proper use in the life of Christians. He doesn't give his entire theology on the topic here, but there are some statements in this chapter that are relevant to single people. Sexual relations are still to be between a husband and a wife, and no one else, verse 2. Marriage is still valued, and married people should seek reconciliation instead of divorce, in verses 10 and 11. And Paul lists some specific biblical conditions, both for getting divorced and getting remarried, in verses 11 through 16. There is freedom to divorce and remarry in cases of abuse or neglect, abandonment by an unbeliever, adultery, or death. But otherwise, the wife must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, in verse 11. But this should be seen in light of Paul's view of being unmarried, that it is good. Here's what he says all throughout this chapter. He wishes all were single like him and calls singleness a gift, in verse 7. He counsels widows to remain single in verse 8 and says they're happier than those who get remarried in verse 40. He advises the unmarried not to seek a spouse in verse 27 and says the one who doesn't marry his fiance is better than the one who does. Verse 38. Why does Paul see singleness as so good? Well, he says that in verses 29 through 31. Because the time is limited and the, this world in its current form is passing away. That's the context for this chapter. Everything is temporary, even the best things in life. Even the greatest marriage is temporary. Jesus will return one day in power and glory, bringing God's, complete, God's kingdom to completion. And Paul lays out what Christians are supposed to do while we wait for that. Live in light of Christ's return. And that's where singleness gets its advantage. It's simpler to do this as a single person than it is as a married person. Not easier, but simpler. Singles are free from the extra troubles that come from marriage, verse 28. My parents have been married over 50 years. Last year, I got a call from my mom to please come get my dad and take him somewhere, anywhere, for a few hours. No idea what happened, just know she needed a break from him. Now, I can personally assure you the single life is not without troubles. But anyone married longer than a week can tell you there are some troubles particular to marriage that singles do not have to worry about. That's what happens when you unite two sinful human beings together for a lifetime. And because of this, 
In verse 34 and 35, singles can be concerned about things of the Lord and be devoted to the Lord without distraction. Married people have to give an enormous amount of time and energy to their spouse and to children if they haven't. Singles don't. I went on a mission trip to Nicaragua several years ago, and I was the only single person on the trip. And as the week went by, my coworkers' longing for their family grew greater and greater till they could almost not stand it at the end of the week. When we got finished with our work in the countryside and made it back to the big city, they immediately went to a phone or the computer to talk with their family and their kids, spouse and their kids. All I wanted was a hot shower. Besides, who would I call? My house was empty back in Fayetteville. My focus could stay on the mission the entire time we were there. The focus was divided for the married people. That's just how it is. But, and this is important, the freedoms in a more flexible schedule found in singleness does not mean we can do whatever we want. These benefits come with responsibilities to the Lord. Singleness has a purpose. It is a gift from God that requires stewardship. Regardless of how you became single and regardless of how happy you are about it. Our culture doesn't help. Where singleness is seen as a time for selfishness, irresponsibility, immorality. But this is not the biblical vision of singleness. Singleness is an opportunity to serve the Lord with undivided devotion. That doesn't mean you have to spend every waking hour in some type of church ministry. But you should be actively looking, pursuing ways to serve the Lord. And Samantha will talk more about, uh, more about this when she comes up. And there's a quote from Barry Danilak in his book, Redeeming Singleness. And he writes this. Christian singleness lived in its fullest expression as a powerful testimony to the gospel. It is a testimony to the supreme sufficiency of Christ for all things testifying that through Christ, life is fully blessed even without marriage and children. It prophetically points to a reality greater than the satisfactions of this present age by consciously anticipating the Christian's eternal inheritance in the kingdom of God. Christian singleness lived as a testimony of this gospel truth is a redeeming singleness. So a final word. To my married sisters in Christ. When we speak of singleness in marriage, it can seem like they're in competition with each other. When we speak highly of one, it can seem like we're denigrating the other. But the truth is, they're complementary. They reinforce and support each other. They portray the gospel together. They demonstrate God's glory together. They advance the kingdom of God together. As such, your theology of singleness will absolutely influence your theology of marriage. If your view of singleness is wrong, so will your view of marriage, and vice versa. Additionally, you almost certainly know someone who is single, someone you are called to minister to and to love. If your theology of singleness is lacking, you won't be able to help them determine what their response should be to situations they face in life, or to walk alongside them when they're struggling. I can personally attest that single people need that in their lives. To my single sisters in Christ, we often bear the brunt of comments which unintentionally tell us we're not good enough. 
and we won't be without a spouse. I hope today's talk has encouraged you that your life is worthwhile and purposeful in and of itself. Singleness is a good gift to be used in and for the kingdom of God. It can be used if you've never married, if you're widowed, or if you're divorced. Simultaneously, I hope this talk challenges you. As singles, we bear a unique burden to demonstrate the sufficiency of Christ, to show a watching world that Christ is enough and he's worth devoting your lives to. Use this time to reflect on your own attitudes towards singleness and marriage. Do you view it as a curse or as an opportunity? As freedom to serve ourselves or to serve something greater? Paige Brown wrote this, Christ did not come simply to save us from our sins. He came, us, came to save us from ourselves. And he most often rescues us from us through relationships. To be single is not to be alone. If someone asks if you're in a relationship right now, your immediate response should be that you are in dozens. Christian growth mandates relational richness. And in just a moment, Samantha um, will come up and she'll go through some practical applications of these truths about singleness and share tips for how we all should be thinking through these rich relationships that we're supposed to be in. And this is true for both married people and for singles. So let's pray. Our gracious Father, we just come humbly before you um, as a creator God who has created everything, including us, and created us in your image. And Lord, I pray that we will see that in each person that we meet, that we will not denigrate them by their marital status, by how much money they have, by anything else in life, but know that they were created for a purpose, created to serve and to love you. And Lord, so I pray that you will just restore the joy of our salvation. Lord, restore the wonder of the gospel that you have given to us through your redemption of singleness, redemption of marriage, redemption of parenting, redemption of our lives through the atoning work of Christ Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's pray one more time. God, let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So it's ironic that I was asked to do this because singleness has actually been more of a struggle for me lately. I think most of you know me. Um, if not, you know my parents, Wes and Kathy. Um, I grew up at this church, but I've spent the past four years in Europe and as I've transitioned to being here for a season, I've longed for a partner to go through that with me who understands what it's like over there and what it's like over here. Um, and now, as I'm uh, thinking of going back and committing to another three to four years, I've had to come to terms with the fact that that probably means singleness for the foreseeable future. And so it's been a season of grieving the possibility of marriage now, while also rejoicing in the Lord's sufficiency and, and what he's allowing me to do because of my singleness. So all that to say, the Lord has been personally encouraging me as I've studied and prayed through this material, and I'm trusting he'll um, encourage you as well. Like Jennifer said, I also don't want to give a talk on how to live the good single life. 
Uh, nor do I want to speak only to singles. Instead, my hope is that through this, you will see more of the goodness of God and that this will help us love each other more and love him more. And my hope is also to start conversations. I'm 26, and my um, experience with singleness is very different from someone else's. And so my hope is that from this, we will be able to uh, go and start conversations with those around us and um, get to know the single ladies in our church better. I took most of this, well, really all of this, from Sam Alberry's book, so I highly recommend it. But we're going to go through his seven myths or lies about singleness, and then the truths that counteract those lies, and how we can practically live that out as a church. And I've also included a lot of scripture references in the outline that we're not going to have time to go through today. So I'd encourage you to take that and spend some time in your quiet time or grab a friend and go more deeply into the scriptures with this this week. The first myth is that singleness is too hard. So Alberry gives this definition of singleness. To be single means to be unmarried and committed for as long as we remain unmarried to sexual abstinence. But our society believes that without sex, you can't be fully human. So think of movies like The 40-Year-Old Virgin. But often the church believes this lie as well and without realizing it, treats singleness as a disease to be cured. Even when we think about the term single, it suggests that something is missing. And so the world's answer to this problem is to add sex on top of singleness or to broaden the boundaries of biblical marriage. But Jesus, in Matthew 19, gives a high standard of Christian marriage and singleness. And so to be a Christian single is going to look very different than being a non-Christian single. But we must remember that Jesus is not calling us to any standard that he did not willingly submit to himself. And to say that singleness is too hard is to negate that marriage is also hard and that singleness is also good. Jesus is the most complete and fully human who ever lived, and yet he was never married, and that was intentional. And so to imply that marriage and sex are necessary to be human is to accuse Jesus of being subhuman. So hold this in mind as you interact with the single brother or sister. See them as a whole person made in the image of God. Don't pity them or define them keep their, and see their identity only bound up in their singleness. What a single person needs is what we all need, and that is for someone to walk alongside them in gospel-drenched compassion. The second lie is that singleness requires a special calling. So it's like this rare superpower, and you need to figure out whether you have it or not, and you really hope that you don't. <laughs> but one danger of this is that you may conclude that you don't have this gift. And so this can lead to bitterness and disappointment, thinking that God is withholding something from you, or it can lead to disobedience, either jumping into marriage too quickly or giving in to uh, your feelings. So if someone struggles with same-sex attraction and concludes that God isn't calling them to singleness, then they can give in to those feelings. Or if someone looks and doesn't see any eligible Christian men around but doesn't think God is calling them to singleness, then they'll start to look for that outside of the boundaries that the Bible sets. Another lie is that singleness is a gift, but it's an unwanted gift. So if you've ever seen a Christmas story, 
Ralphie is a nine-year-old boy, and for Christmas, he receives this giant pink bunny suit. And he gets it from his aunt, who thinks that he is perpetually four and a girl. And sometimes we joke that singleness is kind of a gift like that. But when we're doing that, we are actually accusing God, the all-powerful creator who knows us intimately, of not being a good father. So we have to be careful when we joke like that. But what are the truths that combat these lies? The truth is, is that if you are single right now, then God has called you to singleness right now. And that no matter what stage of life you are in, never married, divorced, or widowed, God has given you a good gift. So Paige Brown, um, who has been mentioned a lot, there's an article in your resource list by her. Um, but she says, I am not single because I am too spiritually unstable to possibly deserve a husband, nor because I am too spiritually mature to possibly need one. I am single because God is so abundantly good to me, because this is his best for me. It is a cosmic impossibility that anything could be better for me right now than being single. The psalmist confirmed that I should not want, I shall not want, because no good thing will God withhold from me. So pray for God to show you the goodness and the gift of singleness. And this gift isn't one that you unwrap and put on a shelf, it's one that you use. And it's not a gift addressed just to the single, but to the entire community. Matt Smether says that everyone benefits from the life of an unmarried person who has embraced this calling, this deployment from the king himself. Lastly, parents prepare your children for singleness. We are not promised marriage or children, and even if most of your kids do get married, most likely they will be single at some point in their adult life. So teach them to value this time and not to see it as something to escape from. Tell them, marriage is a beautiful gift from God, but our deepest desire is for you to become like Christ, whether you are married or single. And give them a context for biblical womanhood and manhood outside of just marriage and parenthood. The Gospel Coalition has a great article that's also on your resource list with more practical tips for how parents can do this. The third lie is that singleness means no intimacy, that the difference between singleness and marriage is one of loneliness versus intimacy. But it's believing this lie that will actually lead to a life of loneliness, or it will lead to a search for sexual fulfillment outside of marriage. And when that becomes a temptation, know first that it's normal, and also that the Bible provides real truth and power to fight those temptations. Um, Albury has a good piece on this in the appendix of his book, and so if that's something you struggle with, um, I'd encourage you to grab someone in the church and ask them to go through that with you and to walk alongside you and to keep you accountable. I think it's belief in this lie that shows just how little our culture really understands and values friendship. And it's belief in this lie that has led so many to leave the church pursuing illicit relationships. So if we as a church can provide intimate relationships for the single and for married too, then people will be less tempted to seek that intimacy outside of the church. We were all made for deep intimacy, both with God and with one another. And so as a church, we need to have a category for finding this intimacy outside of just marriage and family. One of the ways we combat this lie is by valuing friendship and friendship with all types of people. I have some really dear friends who are like family to me, and several of them are married. And so 
we have to remember that both married and single people need each other and they need those friendships and they can uniquely display friendship. So Albury says that friendship and intimacy in marriage provides a uniqueness in depth and for single people they experience a unique breadth. So married experience a unique depth of intimacy and singles a unique breadth. So as singles, take advantage of the fact that you have the capacity for and the joy of having a breadth of beautiful, intimate relationships and pursue those. Tied in with the last lie is the lie that singleness means no family. As Jennifer touched on, the Bible has a different idea of family than just the biological family. Psalm 68 says that God sets the lonely in families. And that's not just an encouraging verse for us, that is also a challenge to us because we are the families in which God is setting the lonely. Jesus touches on this in Mark 10, 29 through 30, when he says that following him will be costly and one of the costliest will be be, uh, giving up family. But he says that there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time. So this is not just a promise for the future, but it's it's a promise for family in the present. So we need to make sure that our church family is really a family so that, those, so that anyone who joins our church can truly say that they've experienced an increase in intimacy and community. So for married people in the church, invite your single friend in. Um, it's sometimes awkward for a single to invite themselves over, but it's always appropriate for a family to invite a single in. Um, but this doesn't mean that if you're single, you should just wait until someone invites you over. That never ends well. Um, I've had to learn just when to text someone and say, hey, can I come over? I'm struggling right now. Because if I'm not honest, then no one may ever know. Um, But the burden to invite people in must also fall on the married married people. Um, Single Christians are our brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, aunts and uncles. They're related to us by the shed blood of Christ. And your kids need more than just you in their life. They need the aunts and uncles and grandmas in the church. I think there's assumptions from both sides that the other won't want to hang out with them. Um, But both married and single believers need each other in their life. So give affirmation to the single that you enjoy hanging out with them. And know that singles like being a part of your life, even the crazy or the mundane aspects. It doesn't need to be anything special, and oftentimes it's better when it's not, when you just treat them like family. Uh, Whitney Woolard said, practically this looks like believers inviting and integrating single people into their lives, eating meals, doing devotionals, watching football, folding laundry, laying around on a Saturday, reading books, talking about life, laughing at YouTube videos, cleaning up, having redemptive conversations, fighting sin, even snuggling with your baby. Don't take for granted that the single person living alone doesn't experience some of these relational components as naturally as a family of five. Some of my favorite times have been with families when it's time for the kids to go to bed and they invite me into that bedtime routine and into their family worship. And it's a blessing to get to be a part of their family in that way and also to get to see what a godly family looks like and to hope to emulate that one day. Um, There's also just something 
uh, just a blessing about sitting on the couch doing nothing together. There's something about sitting in the same room together on your phones that feels much less like a waste of a time than when you're sitting on your couch on your phone by yourself. I don't know why that is, but there is. The next lie is that is the assumption that singleness is a hindrance to ministry, either because they aren't spiritually mature enough yet because of their singleness, or they can't relate to a majority of the church's needs. But this assumes that human experience is more important than divine wisdom. All Christians who are walking with God have unique experience and wisdom and can speak God's word into situations even if they don't have direct experience with it themselves. The single believer, whether never married, divorced, or widowed, is uniquely able to identify with and comfort others who live with unmet desires, grief, and suffering, even if it's of a different nature. And they can be a safe person to share your struggles with. So ask those who have been married to share about their marriage and what they learned, and entrust your burdens to your single friend. Come to them for accountability, encouragement, and the truth found in God's word. Along with their unique experience, they also are uniquely able to serve because of the flexibility that they have. It's been talked about a little bit, but it's easier for me to be away from home and for longer periods of time without worrying how that my absence will affect my family. Um, and it's easier for me to drop things if a crisis arises. So I've been able to go over to a family's house in the middle of the night and stay with their kids so that they could take another of their kids to the hospital. And married people can do this too, but it's just easier logistically for a single. They have more flexibility in that. And they're also uniquely able to show hospitality. So one idea is instead of inviting a family over, which is a great thing to do, um, offer to bring dinner to a family or even to cook in their kitchen. And that's great because the family gets to stay at home where their kids have their toys and don't have to rush home for the bedtime routine. And it also can be great for the single who maybe lives in a place that isn't conducive for a family. And as a church, we need to think through how to use the broad range of gifts that single church members have. And we need to be careful that we don't turn their ability to serve into an expectation that they will always serve and can do the grunt work that no one wants, or that they'll always be the go-to for babysitting and house-sitting. Well, that's good. They have so many more gifts to offer. Um, so consider the ways that they can lead and serve, whether that's in women's Bible studies, or youth, or teaching opportunities, or ushering, or one-on-one -on -one discipleship. And same for those who are widows. Her gifts are not hampered when her husband passes away, but instead, when she's ready, God can use those gifts and her ability to serve to help her heal. There are most singles that I know see the opportunity that they have to serve, and they want to, so don't be afraid to ask. And singles don't wait to be asked. And make sure that you are intentionally pursuing ways to use your time and resources for the sake of serving the church rather than serving yourselves. Look for ways to let your life and your singleness be a living sacrifice to the Lord. And as we use the gifts of singles, we also need to support them and serve them in other ways. So they, they have more control over their time. They don't necessarily have more time. Like everyone else, they have to vacuum and clean the gutters and change oil, cook, take out the trash, balance the budget, and pay the bills. But they have to do it all themselves. 
So often, a single can spend their whole day off just doing work around the house. And so consider the practical needs that your brother and sister has, single brother and sister has throughout the week. Especially think of the widow or the single mom and offer to help, whether that's working on their cars or putting up Christmas lights or helping a newly widowed person make a budget to work on their new income. For me, it's been a huge blessing when people have brought me food when I'm sick or lent me tools to hang stuff on my wall or help me put my windshield wipers on. Um, some people like to be independent and do these things themselves. I'm like that sometimes. But also sometimes we just want help. And so ask and don't just say, let me know whenever you need help, but specifically, what do you need right now? The sixth lie is that singleness wastes your sexuality. That sexuality is like your appendix. It's there, but it's useless. But the truth is that our sexual desires do not need to be met on this life, on this earth, for their purpose to be fulfilled. Albury talks about how marriage reflects the shape of the gospel, and singleness shows us its sufficiency. So I'll say that again. Marriage reflects the shape of the gospel, and singleness shows us its sufficiency. Singleness is evidence that our future reality is so certain and good that we can embrace it now. It declares to a world obsessed with romance that this is only temporary. And it declares to the church and our married friends who have hard marriages and unmet expectations that marriage is not ultimate and in Christ we possess what is. Author Glenn Harrison said, Single Christians who abstain from sex outside the marriage bond bear witness to the faithful nature of God's love with the same authority as those who have sex inside the marriage bond. Denying yourself can be just as potent a picture of a thing's goodness as helping yourself to it. Both single and married people who abstain from sex outside the marriage bond point to the same thing. They both deploy their sexuality in ways that serve as a sign of the kingdom and the faithful character of God's passion. We need singles in the church because they point to the fact that the end of all our longing is found in Jesus. Harrison goes on to say that whether single or married, sexual desire is our inbuilt homing instinct for the divine, a kind of navigation aid showing us the way home. You could think of it as a form of body language. Our bodies talk to us about a greater reality of fulfillment and eternal blessing and urge us to go there. So these longings and this restlessness is to remind us of the ultimate restlessness we have because we're living apart from our creator. And ultimately, the answer to our restlessness is found in the one who has promised true rest for those who come to him. The last lie is that singleness is easy. So far, we've talked a lot about the goodness of singleness, and maybe you're wondering, along with the disciples in Matthew 19, if it's just better not to marry. But hopefully last month's and then today's institutes have shown uh, the great goodness and gifts in marriage and singleness, and also the unique difficulties. And the temptation is for us to compare the ups of the other side with the downs of our own experience. And so we're going to talk just a little bit about the difficulties of singleness. And these vary at different times for different people I mean, to varying degrees. For me, it comes when I'm heading home for an evening alone, and I know there's no one there to tell about my day. Or when I have to walk into a room full of people, not unlike this, and find a place to sit or someone to talk to. For others, it could be not knowing if they'll have Sunday lunch plans. 
For those who have been married, it can be the daily reminders of what they've once lost. And for the widow, it can be realizing they may not hear another human voice for a few days. Often the things aren't necessarily big on their own, and often they aren't an issue, but it's that cumulative effect of the daily reminders that can make it overwhelming. It's the reality that you have friends and family who are like family to you, but at the end of the day, they can get too busy for you, or they can move away and take part of your home with you. It's the bittersweetness that comes when a friend gets married and you're rejoicing with her, while also mourning part of that friendship. It's the reality that your married friends may need, that you may need your married friends more than they need you. They need you, but they have their own family, so they don't have that same need for immediate community as you do. And so it's the reality that you may be the one who always have to, has to initiate because you're the one who wants company on a free evening. So when someone comes to you saying singleness has been hard lately or widowhood or whatever station, first affirm their pain and grieve with them. They need encouragement and truth from the word, but also someone to say, wow, that must be so hard. To jump right in and say, well, you just need to be content with where God has you. Um, it's not always helpful. Um, some helpful things I've heard people say is, once you're content and not looking for a spouse, then God will bring you someone. Um, or this is only temporary. But marriage and children are good things and good things to desire, and you can be desiring them while crying out, how long, O oh Lord, and still be in obedience. So encourage the single sister with the word and with contentment and reminders that God is in control, but also grieve with her. But what is the hope for the single who's, when these pains become overwhelming? It's that God gives us grace for our current situations. He doesn't for all the what ifs and the hundreds of possibilities of whether we'll be alone the rest of our lives or whether how we'll get through tomorrow, but he gives us grace for today. Those what-ifs are imagining a scenario where God is not there, and that will never happen. Psalm 139 speaks of how God has searched us and knows us. He knows us more intimately than we know ourselves. He knows your fears better than you do and your needs better than you do. Our anxieties are worries that God doesn't actually know what we need, that he won't provide the friendships we need, or he just doesn't realize how much we need them, and so he may overlook it or withhold it. Um, but we have to remember that these fears aren't exclusive to single people. Married people have them too, because marriage is not a guarantee of companionship for life, and neither is having kids. No situation provides ultimate security. The only guarantee is that Christ will never leave us or forsake us. What we crave is not found in earthly friendship or marriage. Just as marriage will disappoint, so will singleness. What we need is on a whole level more than any of these things can provide. So the key to finding contentment as a single person is not making singleness into something that will satisfy. And same for marriage. It's not to build a marriage that will make us content. Our contentment does not hinge on our marital status or the depths of our friendship, and that is freeing. It doesn't make singleness necessarily any easier, um, but we know that it is not our capacity and strength that we depend on. It is God's, and the greatness of his power is immeasurable. So while there is so much beyond your capacity to handle, there is nothing beyond his. So as we conclude, I hope you leave having eyes for the single lady in the church and seeing the goodness of singleness. But more than that, I hope we leave seeing even more the goodness of Jesus, 
Because the more we grasp his goodness, the less either singleness or marriage will matter. What matters is knowing that we will never get away from God's goodness and mercy and that our job is to plunge into him and trust him more every day. So we're going to transition now to the panel. And so I'd invite those who are part of the panel to come up. And as we've mentioned, singleness encompasses a wide range of life stages and that every single is different. So the hope for this panel is to hear from different ladies in different circumstances who can provide a greater perspective on some of the things we've talked about this morning. All right, first of all, thank you guys so much for being willing to come up here. Um, So we've invited women from UBC in different categories of singleness here. Um, And so myself and Samantha have already introduced ourselves. So for our first question here, would you guys just um, introduce yourselves? And I love that Emily put down your circumstances because that just made me laugh. (laughs) And then maybe what you do during the the day. So just briefly introduce yourself um, to the group. Yes. I'm Diana Page. <clears throat> um, I'm the widow, because that's my circumstance. Um, and as to what I do during the day, <clears throat> it depends on... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this, because I don't want to get too wordy. <clears throat> it depends on uh, the day, and it depends on the time of the year. <clears throat> because... Um, Depending on what's happening, grands are in ball games or whatever, <clears throat> and so I'm there to watch my grandchildren. Uh, it depends on if I'm doing Bible study or if I'm doing garden club, uh, and if I'm not doing any of those things, then um, the one constant that I have, whether it's grands time, Bible study, garden club, I have one constant, and that is uh, my time that's in the Word. I have to have that time in the Word and with God regardless of what else is happening in my life. And then, of course, I have to love Zoe. So. Um, my name is Dottie Harris. Uh, most recently, I answered to Nani rather than Dottie. Uh, my journey into singleness began in 1974 after graduating from the U of A. Uh, I was married and over the next 15 years was blessed with three precious children. And I would describe my marriage as happy for the most part. But things changed abruptly after two and a half years of abandonment and infidelity and no progress toward reconciliation, my marriage ended in divorce. So at the age of 35, with three children, ages nine, six, and not quite two, I became a single parent, and I have remained single ever since. As to my present daily activities, um, as a retired teacher, I have the freedom to volunteer at Second Mile here at UBC, participate in the Women's Precept Bible Study, and to spend lots of time in relationship with friends. I have great joy at being a mom to adult children and a grandmother to four grandchildren. Uh, I walk my dog Cooper, or he walks me usually, and I, I love to oil paint. I do that once a week. I'm Sarah Highfill. <laughs> 
I'm 40 years old, never married, no kids. I feel like it's an online dating profile. Um, I am a nurse practitioner um, in the clinics division for Washington Regional Medical System here in Fayetteville. I live alone. I own my own home. And um, what other circumstances? I'm an auntie to nine perfect children. It's the best circumstances. All right. So we basically have two questions that we want um, this panel to kind of share with everybody. I'm getting feedback here. Um, so the first one is, how have you personally seen God bring redemption to your story and circumstances as a single woman? And I'll share first if you want to. I can remember junior high, our youth group went to an amusement park one Saturday. And you we were supposed to be in pairs, so you went with someone else. And I got ditched 10 minutes into this trip. I mean, just completely abandoned and left behind. I was like in one of those commercials where Sarah McLaughlin is begging you to please take in these poor puppies who have been left behind. That's how I felt. I was like, I am all by myself in this place. And as I was sitting on that bench, I thought, is this what my life is going to be like? Am I going to be this alone all the time? As years went by, that question still kind of simmered in the background. But what I've learned over the years is not only have I never been abandoned, I've had someone who gave up everything to make sure that I never was. They gave up his life, gave up suffering, so that I could be with him forever. And that's just changed my outlook forever, because I remember sitting on that thing, sitting on that parking thing, and everybody are just jerks. I don't want to be with anybody. You guys all stink. And then wave right into just self-pity and despair. Um, that nobody loves me. Nobody wants to be with me. Um, but, you know, just God has shown that he loves me undeservedly, and I can fully entrust my desires to him, and he will never let me down. I can confess to him my selfishness, my self-pity, um, my jealousy. And then I can put all my hope in the coming resurrection. That's how I live a life of singleness, is that I believe the gospel. So when I was in college, I uh, started seriously thinking about missions. And I had the opportunity to go on a short-term trip and see what it looks like to be a family on mission. And that like blew my mind. It was exactly what I had wanted with family and missions. And so I was like, this is what I want to do. Um, and then about a year later, I had the opportunity to spend a semester in Prague and got to see what it looks like to be single um, on the mission field. And I came back from that wanting to go back to Prague, but also having this desire of having a family. and. Um, kind of just wrestled with that and maybe thought through some of that lie of is singleness a calling and if I'm not called to this then am I also ca not called to go um, but through people counseling me and the Lord just reminded me that I'm single now so I'm called to it and therefore I'm called to walk in obedience to wherever he's leading me and so that led me to Prague and just the past few years I've really had to learn to trust him, and especially when I first got there and lost my family and my friends and identity and church and just felt alone, and yet the Lord was faithful to 
uh, show me that for as many times as it is hard, I can come to him and share that with him, and he will give me his grace. And so I think that's one of the blessings of singleness that often doesn't feel like it, is that we don't have anyone else to lean on, and so I have to grasp onto him for my only hope. And so I can honestly say that through that, I have grown to know and love the Lord more because of my singleness and not in spite of it. I don't know that I can follow that one. Um, I read these questions when Emily sent them, and the word redemption just blew. I thought, redemption? I wasn't seeing redemption. I mean, I'm only redeemed through Christ. That's the only way I can have any redemption. And so I'd really had to ponder on that as to what she was talking about. Um, as a widow, and I'm three years now, um, there you look you it's you step into singleness in a different way much like Dottie did with a divorce there's just this loss and this emptiness but um god has definitely the the little question about circumstances i have definitely seen god's um evidence in my life through circumstances uh most apparent in um an acceptance or a peace when things happen learning to accept those things that happen, learning to have a peace because I'm by myself and there's nobody to help me deal with whatever the situation is. Um, and so God is there, knowing that he's, uh, <laughs> when things fall out of my control, and I never thought I was a control person. I just kind of fly by the seat of my pants or, you know, I just, whatever, okay, let's do this. When it's not in my control, I had to come to a conclusion, then who is in control? <laughs> and God uh, is in control. And boy, did we learn that this year. Some of you who are, are, have done Job but are in Job, whew, is he in control? Um, but I also found that um, I must believe when I'm in a difficult situation to learn to trust him completely to trust and to not be afraid because I'm not in control of that situation. And that through my struggles, whatever it is he's he's taking me through right now, it's that I'm being trained to help others as they go through a storm, that I will have learned something that God will have blessed me, given me a sense of his sufficiency and his peace that I can share. And this is something that really um, has come home to me. He allows the situations and the struggles to strengthen us. Never to doubt God because he doesn't forsake or forget us and that he will restore or redeem uh, my life because my life is totally different now, but it's he is restored and, re, and is using through the life that I am now to struggle, I mean to uh, comfort and to, to learn that thing. I have a little phrase it is what it is. <laughs> and all of my friends know, Diana says, it is what it is. Um, and I know that it all comes through his hands. Um, in my journey of singleness after the divorce, um, God just revealed his character to me in many ways. Um, I've never been abandoned by God. Uh, he has steadfast love. Uh, God continues to grant mercy as he guides me and molds me. Even when life's pathways uh, take a turn or are not visible, God is the light of our path, and he is worthy 
of our trust and obedience. And as our sovereign Lord, he will accomplish his purposes as he wills. Only God can so affect our hearts that we can have a joy and peace that confounds the world. Uh, secondly, God redeemed me through prayer. Uh, he hears us. Uh, he loves to hear from us. And he doesn't mind when we cry out to him with our questions, uh, our needs, and our desires. Uh, and as we look to him through prayer, he guides our wants and desires to align them with his own. So I'm grateful for that. He also redeems us through his word. Uh, God has been faithful to me to use his word to reprove and correct uh, as we seek to follow him. Um, I've been amazed at how God uh, has redeemed me through his provision through all these years. Um, first of all, he gave me a stable job so that I could provide for the needs of my family, my children. Uh, he gives us wisdom uh, to those who ask in faith, believing. His wisdom leads us to skillful uh, living by allowing us to think and decide and act upon truth. And that leads us to execute sound judgment in our lives. Uh, God's provision through the body of Christ has been amazing. Um, I can recount several. A deacon bringing groceries on a snowy day. Uh, Sunday school teachers pouring in truth into the lives of my children. Uh, godly men spending time with my sons especially, even to work with them on mission trips. Um, Christian counselors have been very important. Um, I have a sweet uh, friend who came and changed my bed sheets when I was incapacitated from foot surgery. Uh, you know, that's a servant heart, and uh, the body of Christ has been that to me. Um, so I guess the question for me is, how does God want to use me as he accomplishes his purposes, whether single or not? Um, as we surrender all areas of our lives to his lordship, not just singleness, we can move forward knowing that we're in his loving and powerful hands and as it says in Romans eleven thirty six, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Um, I think first for me is that I'm, I haven't always been content in my singleness. We probably have all felt that way. Um, I also think that a lot of you are probably not content in your marriages. So I think that we're actually more similar than we are different. Um, one thing that I, when I think, I just turned 40 and I think, I'm 40? I feel like I'm 25. But I'm 40 and I've never been married. And the more I reflect on that, the more I think, how, there is no way I would have ever made it this far had God not kept me. It is by the grace of God. So I think one way that God redeems my singleness is that he's holding me fast and I'm still believing. 
even though I'm 40 and I've never been married. And in the American South, that seems like a curse. I'm glad Jennifer brought that up. Um, And I think a lot of people probably look at me and think I'm their worst nightmare. They never want my life. In fact, I've had some people say that. (laughs) But because it looks scary. And so I think of all of the ups and downs, and I think but God's kept me. And that is the biggest thing that stands out because I've known a lot of people, Christian and non-Christian, a lot of my Christian friends and non-Christian friends, who have not made it (laughs) this far with God's keeping. I know a lot of people who have left the faith because singleness just looks too hard. And so they completely walk away. So the fact that I'm 40 and God is still keeping me is only by his grace. And that is a miracle that is not lost on me at all. So I think that's one way of looking at redeeming singleness. And I'm going to be brief, but there was something else I was going to say. Yes. So I think also one thing that I always encourage other women with is that you don't make it in any life stage very long without believing the promises of God. And so when people say, well, then how do you, like practically, how do you get up and do this again every single day? How do you keep living your life? Well, do we really believe scripture? I remember saying that to someone recently. And I really pressed into saying, you say these words, and it sounds like you want to believe them, but do you really believe the promises of God through scripture? We see through an entire redemptive arc, which I love that Jennifer did that as well. Excellent job, by the way. <laughs> Very good. Um, redemptive arc from beginning to end. Um, We see God's promises from the very beginning. In Joshua, he will never leave us or forsake us. In Isaiah, he's upholding us. He's strengthening us, helping us. Then we see Jesus come on the scene, and everything makes sense, right? At least from this end, it makes more sense. He he keeps us, and his promises are always there. So I think that another way, this is kind of stemming from that um, question a little bit, but the the big... um, pressing into redemptive singleness is, do we actually believe the promises of God? Do we believe what he says to be true? Or does it just sound nice and we think we're supposed to believe it, but we're not actually living and pressing into that? So that that's kind of a challenge as well. All right, so we're going to end real quickly. Um, all of you are members of UBC. You're active participants in our life here in the congregation. So I want you to think of one practical thing that you wish others in the church would do, say, or understand regarding your position as a single woman. So if you could say to the church here one thing, what would you tell them about being single? One thing that I have struggled with as a single is hearing so often just how sanctifying marriage is, Um, and it is, but I think Sometimes it can be portrayed as your sanctification really starts once you get married and that it's not until that point that you're sanctified. And so I've struggled with, am I being as sanctified as my married friends or am I going to end up being more selfish because I'm not living with someone who's always sanctifying me? Um, And so I think as a church, we can encourage our single ladies and brothers that Um, It is Christ who sanctifies us and not our life circumstance. God uses that, but he can sanctify you just as much through singleness as through marriage. And um, so as you encourage her with that 
Christ is purifying his bride and bringing her to the end and point out those areas that you see God's grace working in her life and growing her um, and then challenge her to continue pursuing sanctification within the church because that's how we're sanctified whether married or single is through the church and so um, encourage her to pursue discipling relationships and um, whether that's discipling or being discipled but to be in that community I think one of uh, when I first started living on my own, I realized that I am by myself all week, and so no one knows what I did, what, how I used my time, if I was in the Word, and that was like a really intimidating thought. And so um, the church was a blessing to me that they, that's where I found my accountability and discipleship and through that uh, sanctification. And so um, I think, yeah, we need encouraging discipling relationships and not because the single needs it more but because we all need it and um, need each other to be sanctified. I think um, the one word that I would use is inclusion. It's very easy I mean because the world is twos for most things and so I think that one of the things that the church um, I'm blessed I'm fortunate to be included in a lot of things but I think inclusion is something that we really need to do with with single um, people men or women is to make them feel like they're part of it and that we're still of value and that we still have things that we can do just because we're single doesn't mean we aren't able to to serve or to um you know, fulfill something. And I think that from a widow's standpoint, <clears throat> that one of the things is not to be uncomfortable mentioning. I mean, I love it when somebody says, oh, Walt used to do such and such, or, oh, I miss Walt at the door. I mean, you know, people don't want to, it's like they're afraid if they say you're you know, your, the spouse's name, that that's going to be painful, or I don't know why they, they, you know, what it is they don't say it, but that's another thing, to just feel comfortable in talking to us, whether it's mentioning the spouse or whether it's not, you know, it's just to go ahead and, um, and don't be afraid of conversation, or what do I say to her, you know, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to offend her, or I don't want to hurt her, just talk to me, you know, so that's my thing, it's inclusion and and conversation, talking. Yeah. Uh, I think I was uh, considering the book of Job. We just finished that in our precept study. And, and you know, Job had these three friends that felt obligated to instruct him <laughs> on his condition. And uh, it turns out that they presumed to know what God had for for uh, Job, you know, and they were wrong, and God uh, called them on it. <laughs> uh, I just think sometimes we presume if someone's single or widowed or divorced that uh, there's certain parameters in their life that we you can assume, and I think we we ought to maybe back off and just approach them as a sister or a brother in Christ and and lift them up before the Lord in prayer. Uh, be a good listener and and uh, uh, just be a servant to them. I'm going to be really fast because I might have more than one thing, but I will be brief. So singleness isn't sad. You know, being, I, I think that there's an assumption that 
well, let's talk about singleness as suffering, which it can be, but we don't want to say the same thing about marriage. And so there's a big divide where I feel like single or I should say unmarried people are pitied. Um, But, you know, marriage isn't a fix to that. And so I think that's a very... Um, we need to be very careful about how we approach that, especially in the American South where marriage and family is very common. If you live anywhere else in the country or the world, you might find that it's not as common. Um, And so that is a cultural mindset. So that's the first thing. We're not all sad people that are just living a ho-hum life and woe is me and I just need a man to fix everything. That is not how we live. It's just not. Maybe there are days, yes, absolutely, like Samantha said, like it would be very helpful to have someone fix this for me, but I'm going to have to Google it and YouTube it, and you know what? I do fix things because I have to, but it would be nice if somebody was there to do it, right? So there are days when we feel that sadness, but we're not just sad and we don't really want to be pitied because these are temporary circumstances. We may all end up married and then single again, and so... I think that's a a really common misconception is that singleness is bad and you must be sad. Let me help you fix that with marriage. I say that and then immediately say, get up in our business and set us up. There (laughs) There are not many single Christian men in the world. We have some great ones in this congregation. So when you're listening to the podcast, guys, I don't know if this is gonna be on it, but we love you and we're thankful for you. But historically, From the beginning of the Christian church, it's been overwhelmingly female. This is a historical fact. This is true even in the world today. Look at Iran's church. It's overwhelmingly female. They are doing an amazing church planting movement there, driven by women. So the church, I don't know why God designed it that way. I have no idea. That's in his purpose, his eternal purpose. I think God really loves women. But I think that, you know, that's something that we have to keep in mind when we think about how we're viewing marriage from this end, we want to be set up. If you know someone, set us up. If we don't want to be set up or we think he's weird, we'll tell you. This, this should be something we do as a family. This is what families do. And so at the same time, don't expect that we're just miserable, but also set us up if you know someone. <laughs> Other tiny thing, I felt like you were maybe cutting me off. <laughs> Tiny thing, and this is something, and I'm going to be quick. This is something I think um, as an auntie with um, young, my, my little women in my life who I get to be a very intimate piece of their life, um, and it's actually super fun and super special because I'm not their mom, but I'm kind of their mom. In fact, some of them have looked at me and said, you're kind of my mom. <laughs> like, yes, we got to figure this out because <laughs> I'm not their mom, but I'm kind of their mom, um, which is what a great gift of being an auntie is. But um, I, I encourage this. Our family is very big on encouraging this with our little women and our little men, but especially little women because I don't think it's culturally done for little girls as much as to teach them to stand on their own two feet, to be courageous, to be brave, to live the life that God has given them. I'm going to bring up 1 Corinthians. No, this is in 2 Corinthians. No, it's 1 Corinthians 7. Paul and Sosthenes. I brought this up at a previous function this week, and I'm like, it keeps coming back. But it's a verse I love to to read. It's in 1 Corinthians. Paul and Sosthenes are telling us to 
or they say, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him or her and to which God has called him or her. So I think that that's something that we don't often teach little girls from day one, not just when they're 26 or 40 or older, but from the very beginning, that at the end when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we will give an account for our lives, the life that God assigned to each of us. And no man is going to give account for me, not a husband, no one, not my father. I will give an account for the life that God gave me. What did I do with it? And so I think when we teach little girls that their ultimate, you know, I hear 17-year-olds talking about, am I going to get married? I'm like, sister, you're 17. Let's live the life God has for you. That may include marriage, and that would be wonderful. But that, you are not, your value doesn't come from a ring on your finger or what your uterus produces. That is not your value. God has given you a life to live. So live it to the fullest. Serve him. Love others. And I think we need to teach that to little girls from the very, very beginning, especially as Christians. We have more to offer than the world can offer. Okay, I'm done. (laughs) Thank you so much um, for sharing your lives with us, too. Um, Showing what singleness looks like in various stages. And like you mentioned, we're not all sitting on the couch crying and bemoaning situation, there are viable, vibrant lives lived um, in service for the kingdom of advancing the kingdom of God.